Okay, let's talk about apostles. So, so last or yesterday, I was just laying uh, the understanding of what that ministry is. Um, I'm not calling it an office. There's the elders and the deacons is the only offices of the church. But there are gifted men who in history have been called apostles and whom we see in the New Testament. And they had a certain job description, which was to bring about the obedience of faith um, among the nations. So um, that's what we were describing, and the character of those people. And doing that because we wanted to make sure that you have in your mind a legitimate picture of what an apostle is compared to that one that you were describing that you see here um, in Ethiopia. And so you have something to, to point to um, and draw attention to if, if you, uh, as you're interacting with people who have that other idea of the apostle. So today I just want to spend some time uh, defending the continuation of apostolic gifting. And I just want to say that it isn't necessary uh, to be a sovereign, if you're a sovereign grace pastor, it isn't necessary that you believe the apostolic gifting continued. That's one place where we decided not to draw a line because there are some who don't think so and some who do. So I'm basically just presenting my, my understanding of this because I am convinced that the apostolic gifting continues, though without the authority of the originals. And I think that matters because one of the arguments against continuationism is that if you agree that one gift ceased, then who's to say that some of the other ones didn't cease? That's also another argument. And I would just say it didn't. It didn't cease. And so I'll present some, some of the reasons why I believe that's true. So this is for your information. You're not getting tested on this. <laughs> but I think it's good for you to at least heard it once. So first of all, no text explicitly says apostolic gifting has ended. I don't think that should be overlooked because um, I feel like it's more of an assumption than a proven statement. No text actually says that will cease. The only text we have that talks about when gifts will cease is 1 Corinthians 13.10, which refers to the partial. And the gifts that are immediately in that context are prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. But I don't think partial refers to only those three gifts. Every one of our gifts that we exercise is done in an incomplete way. Um, it isn't completely right. It's not perfect. There's a little bit of us in it. Um, and so by principle, I think 1 Corinthians 13.10 also applies to the whole list of gifts um, in 1 Corinthians 12, which at the end of 12, right before he talks about that. So in principle, at the very least, it doesn't argue for the ending of the apostolic ministry. So that's just one piece of information. There's nothing that directly says that they ceased. The other, and I think this might be the most important one, B, is the role is still needed today. What apostles did then is still needed to be done today and is being done, though hardly anybody would call it apostolic, but I think it's better to call it what it is so that we have some biblical grounding for it instead of just create roles and um, bureaucracy that takes the place of apostolic ministry but does the same thing. So anyway, the role is still needed. We defined it previously um, as to bring about the obedience of faith, of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, Romans 1.5. That's what Paul said. That's why we have received grace <clears throat> and apostleship. It's to bring that about. It's to make disciples of all nations. Somebody's going to be the spearhead of that initiative. Somebody's going to be bringing this gospel that's been entrusted to us into new territory 
pushing out the boundaries of the kingdom of God and strengthening the churches that, that have been planted. Somebody's going to be mobile. Somebody's going to be, has gifting beyond their local church to go and has, has the capacity and the wisdom and the gifting to, to lead this movement forward. That's what Paul said. That's why I've been given apostleship. And then in Ephesians 4.12, we have the list of the gifts that God has given to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ. So it's not just foundational that apostles are involved in. It's also the building part. So you'd have to have some convincing argument that some reason only the pastors and teachers and evangelists are still needed and we don't need the apostles and prophets in that building process. That doesn't seem likely to me. <clears throat> Apostolic ministry is a missional task. And if you look at all the people who are named as apostolos in the New Testament, besides the twelve and Paul, you have Barnabas, you have Silas and Timothy, James the Lord's brother, Apollos, there's an argument for him if you look at who Paul is talking about in Corinthians. Epaphroditus, and then these other unnamed people who are the apostles or the messengers of the churches. There's quite a few, and they are all involved in this ongoing expansion of the gospel to new places. So we just say that is, that is a ministry that's going on everywhere around the world until Jesus comes. So it seems to me the role is still needed, and um, that means the gifting must be needed to continue to do it. And then C, and this is, the, this is the one where most people get the hang-up. This is where people are undecided. It's, it's been said that you have to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ to be an apostle. Um, that's almost taken as a given, as if it was absolutely proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you had to have seen the risen Christ to be an apostle. I don't think that's true. I don't think you have to have seen him. And so I'll give you a few reasons why. Um, number one, the 12 had a specific reason to have seen the risen Christ that was not required of later apostles. So if you look at Acts 1, 21 to 22, this is the uh, meeting in the upper room as they're waiting for the promise that Jesus said he would send, the promise of the Holy Spirit. They're still in the city of Jerusalem. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. And they say, we got to add another apostle. You know, Judas went to his own place. We need another one. So here's the, here's the requirements for that 12th apostle, the replacement for Judas. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I want to point out the requirement there is more than just having seen the risen Christ. This replacement for Judas, he had to have gone in and out among us. He had to have accompanied us during the whole time that Jesus went in and out among us, starting with the baptism of John, all the way to the ascension, to the day when he was taken up from us. So this person had to have been in the group, not as, not as one of the 12 that was chosen originally, but still one of the group of disciples that was following around with Jesus during those three years of his ministry, all the way up through the resurrection and the ascension. That's more than just a requirement that he had to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. He had to be one of those guys, particularly. That's important. We'll come back to it. But why did they have to have a 12th apostle? Why did he have to be a witness to the resurrection? You know this is before Pentecost. And Pentecost is the transition point, right? Where the Holy Spirit is now going to be poured out. And he's going to be poured out on your sons and daughters, your old men, your young people, broadly. And he's going to indwell in us. This is going to be the sea change in the way the Holy Spirit is active. 
And so you got Pentecost, we've got all of the nations of Israel coming from all over. All the tribes are represented in Jerusalem on this feast day. Okay, let me just say, uh, so we're talking about why I think that an eyewitness to Christ is not a requirement for all apostles. Why couldn't uh, they just come forward with 11? Why did they have to add a 12? It's because there's something very symbolic about the number 12 and about what was going to happen at Pentecost. At Pentecost, you have the 12 tribes of Israel all gathered in Jerusalem. And for this momentous thing that's about to happen, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so what's going to happen is you have a tw another 12, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, who would represent the, the, the 12 tribes of the true Israel that is created by those who follow the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The, the true Israel is those who follow Christ. And so you have these 12 representing this true Israel who are the followers of the Lamb, who have seen his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And they come to the city and they, they, they speak about how you crucified this Messiah, but we have seen him risen from the dead. Repent and believe. So it's a confrontation between the true Israel of God, those who are formed around Jesus, and the nation of Israel who crucified him. That's why I think there needed to be a 12th. And that's why I think there needed to be the witness of the whole of his ministry, not just his resurrection, but all of his life. They had to be those who had followed the Lamb, who were themselves Jews, who had put their trust in this Christ. And so later on, when James is martyred, they don't try to replace him because there's no more need for that. The confrontation was over. That's my understanding of why they had to have seen the risen Christ. But again, they had to see more than just the risen Christ. They had to have been there from the baptism of John all the way to the ascension. So I just want to point out, Paul did not meet those requirements. He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. But he wasn't there. He could not have been the replacement for Judas. So the requirement shifted at least a little bit in Paul's case, right? The question is whether or not you still needed to have seen the risen Christ at all to be a, an apostle. So let me, and, and um, yeah, I'll come back to that. Um, so here's the second reason. Paul's eyewitness experience was not a necessary part of his preaching. One thing that you'll see when you look at the sermons of Peter and of Paul in Acts, they aren't the same in terms of how they talk about the risen Christ and how they make use of their fact that they saw him. So, for example, Peter constantly preached, we are witnesses of his resurrection. That's what he would focus on. He's always speaking to the Jewish nation we are witnesses. That was very important. That's why Matthias also had to be one. However, Paul never preached that way that we have record of, even though he had seen the risen Christ. I think that's because he was an apostle to the Gentiles, and it wasn't as important for them to know that he was himself a witness. So let's just look at two examples of Paul's preaching. One was to the Jews, and one was to the Gentiles. To the Jews, Acts 13, 29 to 31, they took him down from the tree. So he's speaking to the Jews as he's preaching. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He's speaking there of the twelve, those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They... Are, they are now his witnesses. But Paul himself did not say in this sermon, I am a witness. He just said, God raised him from the dead. He just wants people to know, this Jesus who was killed has been raised. To the Gentiles, he said, the times of ignorance, this is in Athens, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Again, no mention that Paul actually saw this with his own eyes, even though he had seen the risen Christ. His own eyewitness testimony was not part of his preaching. I think that's a significant change because his his encounter with the risen Christ wasn't an essential part of his preaching. It was enough to preach that Jesus rose from the dead, a fact confirmed by eyewitnesses. And so that is a message that apostles or anybody can still preach today. We don't have to say, I saw it. We can just say, he raised from the dead. Even Paul said that. Um, some look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2 as, say, of, as Paul claiming that having seen Jesus our Lord is what makes him an apostle. So I'll read that again. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So in context, what Paul is doing right there is he is defending why he has a right to receive income from the Corinthians, though he does not use that right for their sakes. So is he saying here, though, that having seen Jesus is a requirement to be an apostle? Well, if you really want to look at a statement that convinces us how you, get, how you know somebody's an apostle, it's the last phrase. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are. You, the church of Corinth, are the seal. A seal is that which confirms or authenticates. So right there we have a direct statement of how you know Paul is an apostle. He says, You're, this church exists. I planted it. I've cared for this church. It's part of my ongoing ministry. It's part of me making sure that there's the obedience of faith um, among the nations. It's part of my job. That's how you know I'm an apostle. We can understand these four rhetorical questions as independent reasons that Paul is giving for why his ministry to the Corinthians is worthy of compensation. He says, I'm free, meaning I can eat unclean foods. That was an issue He's, he's free to eat whatever he wants in the gospel. He's not being immoral. He's not being hypocritical if he's eating something that Jews aren't supposed to eat. So he's not an immoral guy. He can't be accused of that. That's why he's still worthy of, of compensation. He's an apostle, he says. I'm called to plant and build churches like Corinth. He says, I've seen Jesus. And the emphasis there is not on the risen Jesus. It's just that Jesus personally showed himself to him Another way of saying, my ministry is legitimate. Jesus himself I, I have seen. And they are his workmanship, this church. They are my work. They, they are a church because of his labors. He's just giving reasons, independent reasons, as to why he is a worthy of compensation. I think that's how we read that particular verse. I don't think it's a way of saying that you must have seen Christ to be an apostle. And then the last one, yeah, the appearance of Jesus to all the apostles. So some look at 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 9, and take away from it the idea that this is the list of apostles, and Paul is the last one. <clears throat> Let's just read that, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 9. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of, all, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That's the key phrase. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So some claim that Jesus appeared to all the apostles, and therefore anybody claiming to be an apostle who hasn't seen Jesus is false. But that isn't a necessary conclusion. I don't think that's a, the right conclusion. Because when he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, he obviously does not mean every apostle who ever was or ever will be, because that all doesn't include Paul himself. 
he could he appeared to all the apostles. Then, last of all, he appeared to me also. So Paul's not part of that all. It's not comprehensive. It's all the apostles, either potentially the twelve again, or if there were any other apostles we don't know about at that time, those also. But whoever it was, it was the apostles who were there before Paul was an apostle. Because last of all, he appeared to me. So it doesn't include Barnabas. It doesn't include Epaphroditus. It doesn't include the messengers of the churches, the apostles of the churches, that we learn about much later. What this is, is just a statement of all the people that Jesus appeared to, not a list of all the apostles. It doesn't say that others couldn't have been apostles later that Jesus didn't appear to. It's just a list to prove his point of 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. That's something that the church of Corinth was confused about. They weren't sure if he had. And so he's saying, yes, he did. He appealed to a whole bunch of people. He's not really trying to give a comprehensive list of apostles. It's not the goal there. So anyway, not comprehensive. Lots more that could be said. I'm just putting it out there for your consideration. I think it's important. But the summary that I, I would give as to why apostolic ministry continues. We can go back to what, what we put on the board the other day. You have the 12. You have Romans 1, or Romans 1, 5. What apostles do bring about the obedience of faith. You have Paul. You have Barnabas. You have another James. You have Epaphroditus. Silas. And, and others. Okay? These guys, remember, these are the extraordinary status. Extraordinary status. These guys, ordinary status. All of them are doing this, bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. These don't continue. That ended. We don't replace the 12. We don't replace Paul. These continue. Because the work continues, but without the authority of the originals. That's my understanding. Like MacArthur, for example, would look at the 12 and Paul with a very special, unique kind of authority. And James, he would acknowledge as an outstanding leader and called an apostle. But most of the cessationists, I don't think, are putting James in the same category as those guys. Remember, James was an unbeliever for a long time until after Jesus rose from the dead. His brothers didn't even believe in him, it says. So he was kind of late to the game, but he was very influential, very important. He was the one who was leading the Jerusalem Council. But even if you put him over on the extraordinary side, because you're not going to repeat the Lord's brother, <laughs> uh, you have all these other guys who are doing the mission with an apostolic gifting. And so they continue. That continues. Last message. So this is pretty much to bring together everything we've talked about. And to uh, hopefully inspire us to go forward and do something with it. So last message is about word and spirit churches. We want to encourage you to build churches that rely on both the word of God and on the spirit of God, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So 
let's start with this first point. The word of God is essential. And this is a provocative thing to say. The word of God is essential, but not enough to transform people. Okay, I'm saying it that way to, um, to get at what I know for me was a wrong assumption. I felt for a long time all I had to do was have sound doctrine and preach the true gospel, and that itself would transform people. But we all know that that isn't true. <clears throat> so let me say what I mean, though. First of all, I want to affirm God's word is essential. We cannot build churches, we cannot see people come to Christ without the gospel being said. So at the end of Luke, Jesus is saying to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus is saying, he takes them, he says, everything that's written about me in the Old Testament, the, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, that's all of the Old Testament. All of that is about me. It's all pointing to me. It's all pointing to the redemption story that one day was going to come the deliverer, uh, the serpent crusher, uh, the, the king after David, that person that everybody's been waiting for. That's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, our true Savior. And that we must repent of our sins and submit to this Savior. That's the message that has to go out. And he says all the scripture is pointing to that message. And then he opens their minds to understand this. To understand the scripture. So he starts with this reminder. You need to understand the scriptures. And especially you need to understand the centrality of the gospel. And this message that is the only saving message. You know, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we build our churches on this gospel foundation. We lay the same foundation that Paul did and the other apostles. And every church planter since then. So absolutely the word of God is essential. And central within that word of God is this redemption storyline of the fallen world renewed through Jesus Christ. So we absolutely pay attention to that message. But this is point B. God's word enough is not enough to transform people. So here's an example of what I mean. Acts 17, 32 to 34. So Paul's preaching in Athens to all these pagans and these thinkers and philosophers and so forth. And it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There's always three ways that people respond to the accurate and clear preaching of the scriptures. Some mock. Others say, we'll hear you again. I'm not sure yet. And then there's others who will join and believe. And it's just like the parable of the, seed, of the sower. There's different soils, right? In some, the birds of the air take it, goes away, nothing happens. Others, a little bit of something grows for a while, and then something causes that to die off. And then there's one soil, though, where it bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, right? The, the word itself, that's what in the parable of the soils, the word is the seed. The pure, great doctrine that we preach is, does itself, by itself, does not produce fruit. It has to land on the right heart. Something else has to happen besides God's word. So let me add. In point two, what's missing? It takes both the Word and the ministry of the Spirit to transform people. We need those together. Word and Spirit. 
And I think we need to hear that because we, we, we love the truth. <laughs> and we should love it. But just speaking the truth by itself will not build churches. It will not save the world. The Holy Spirit needs to work. Nothing will happen without the activity of the Spirit. So A, we do preach the word. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the way Jesus left them. And you might think, well, they're good to go now. They have their minds open to understand the Scriptures. And He's saying, go do it. Proclaim His name to all the nations. But then He says, I'm sending you the promise. Luke 24, 49. I'm sending you the promise of my Father. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So I've, illumined, I've, I've made you understand the Scriptures now, and you have the Gospel content, and you're going to proclaim it, but you've got to wait. You've got to wait for something. What is that something? The Holy Spirit. That's the promise from the Father. So in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. They had to wait for the Holy Spirit. The message wasn't enough. The Spirit has to work. The power of the Spirit is for witness. And that witness comes through the proclamation, and it also comes through the evidential demonstration of the reality of the kingdom that is coming. And so that's why they, they, they prayed in Acts 4, the way we started out this week. They prayed, give us boldness to preach this gospel and send forth your, stretch out your hand and, and perform signs and wonders and healings in the name of the Lord. So both of those are part of the witness that Holy Spirit activity along with the preaching of the gospel is how this church is going to go forward. It's how it's going to go from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We need both the Word and the Spirit. Because the ministry of the Spirit is not just illumination and conviction. It's also empowerment, and it's the distribution of the gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's why, that's why we've had this course. It's not because... Life's not very interesting if you're only in the Word a lot. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have a healing once in a while to spice things up. Uh, tongues are interesting. That would be a, a unique morning. We, that's not at all what we're after here. What we want is all the gifts that we can get, all the manifestations of God's Spirit that we can get to build up the church and to spread this gospel. And so that's why we don't want to be on a hunt to find out which ones we don't need anymore. Let's just accept all the ones that he says he gives to us, and then let's earnestly desire those and practice those. Why? Not so we can have interesting meetings, but because we want people to be saved, and we want Jesus to be glorified. And these are the ways that he wants to be glorified. So that's why this week matters. That's why these, this whole thing about gifts is important. The, the record in Acts, the record of the first 30 years of the building of the church is a pattern for how it goes forward. And Jesus is building his church by the word and by the spirit. If we'd be true to Christ, we want both of those things. We can't choose one over the other. Um, true Christians can be just on the word side or on just the spirit side. But like the power for witness comes to having those two things together. So point three here is that we have to recognize our own tendencies and find out where are we, where are we lacking in faith or practice in the things that God wants for us, for his glory, for the, for the expansion of his church. And just evaluate our own selves. Where is it that we need growth? where we need the Lord to, to come and help us, where we need to ask for faith or repentance. So what, to that end, you have a table in your notes. This is my original copy. But in your, in your binder, you should have a table that's like two and a half pages, right? So I got this table from Sam Storms. I'm going to walk you through it, not every single line, but through some of it. Um, the left side is word... Uh, very typical of cessationist 
churches. The right side is spirit, very typical of continuationist churches. And there are certain characteristics here. There are tendencies, I think we should say. They're not concrete characteristics necessarily, but there are certain tendencies for word churches and certain tendencies of spirit churches. And every line here isn't necessarily an either-or. They could all be both and. But I think you recognize kind of where you fall on the spectrum here as we read through this. And so let's just read through a few of these things and tell tell me if this doesn't like hit home uh, and make sense to you, okay? So uh, a word church uh, is the second line. It's characterized frequently by predictability. Uh, If it's not in our plan, it's not allowed. (laughs) That's predictability. Uh, I want to script everything. I want to control how everything goes, every meeting, um, our plan for the next year, for the next five years. And if it's not in our plan, it's just not going to happen. I want predictability, right? I think that's another way of saying I want control. Then on the other side, you have the spirit churches where they value spontaneity. Um, plan? Who needs a plan? I mean, we're just going to be follow, we're just going to follow the spirit. That's all we're going to do. Now, it's not either or, but there's tendencies, right? I mean, we should be open to following the Spirit and changing our plan. But at the same time, having no plan is not responsible and it's not wisdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 said, let all things be done decently and in order. There's order. (laughs) There's an order to a meeting. Um, When it's out of order, that's not good. But we have tendencies. Predictability versus spontaneity. Um, Word churches prize knowledge. Did you understand the message? That's what we want. Um, I preached. Did you, what did you get out of that? We want understanding. Um, we prize knowledge. Uh, a spirit church might prize experience more. Did you feel God's presence today? Would be the question. As opposed to, did you understand the message? But again, do we want knowledge? Yes. Do we want to experience God's presence? Yes. So it's both. But we can lean one way or the other and not prize the other side. Uh, Focus on the intellect, word churches, versus focus on the affections. Um, Focus on the affections can be as if if the intellect um, and and emotions are incompatible. You know, like if you're going to be a word church, you always have to be uh, sober, serious, controlled, moderated, uh, as opposed to, I can't, I can't shout, I can't, I can't raise my hands, I can't, I can't rejoice and, and show it in emotion. I mean, it's not like those two should be in opposition. The affections and the intellect, they should go together, but we, we go in one way or the other. Uh, word churches have a penchant for the archaic, the old, uh, the old-fashioned, the things that we've done for a hundred years. A pension for that. Uh, whereas spirit churches, pension for the novel. Uh, I want a new idea. I want a, a new doctrine. Something I've never heard before. Let's, let me hear about that. There's, there's a little bit of an, too much of an openness to what's new and novel. Um, word churches are process oriented. Progressive sanctification. It's going to take a long time. We're going to work at this and work at this. And over time, God's going to be doing something. Whereas maybe a spirit church is more event-oriented. I want a prophecy today that sets me free right now. I want big transformation to happen this week. And I'm expecting it to happen. So there's, there's an expectation that an event might change your life. Whereas on the word churches, we're ready to go the long haul. Again, should, should we be open to both of those? Transformation can happen in a second. It absolutely can. And yet we also have the, the truth of the word that you know, we change gradually. It's a walk. <laughs> we, we walk through this life. We don't run. Um, word churches focus on the not yet. Spirit churches focus on the already. So the kingdom is not here we just have to endure. That can be the word kind of mentality. We're going to wait. We're not going to expect too many miraculous things to happen. That's not yet. That's to come. 
Whereas the spirit church is like, I expect the miraculous every day. <laughs> I mean, the kingdom has come in Jesus. So, so let's see it. Let's see healings. And there can be different uh, ideas about what we should expect in this in-between period, the now and the not yet. Um, word churches can have a pe potential for defeatism. You know, I just have to suffer until Jesus returns. <laughs> I'm just going to grin and bear it. I'm just going to hunker down and forbear. Whereas on the spirit side, potential for triumphalism. You know, I'm a child of the king, and I'm going to, to get what is rightfully mine now. <clears throat> you know, healings now, that kind of thing. Triumphalism, we've arrived. Um, sort of an entitlement mentality can, can set in. Uh, word churches, we struggle with the flesh. The flesh is our biggest enemy. It's the sin in me. It's my weakness and my limitation. Uh, the spirit side is, is struggle with demons. Uh, everything is, is about the demons. The devil is always the one attacking me. It's never about me. So we just locate what the problem is a little differently. Again, are demons real? Is the devil real? Is he after us? Absolutely he is. We have an adversary, a roaring lion. Seek someone to devour. But we also do struggle with the flesh. Paul said, in my flesh lies no good thing. Um, but I am renewed in Christ, but I am still in this flesh, and there are certain weaknesses I have, tendencies, sinful tendencies, besetting sins. So again, we need both. Word churches have a tendency to deify tradition. You know, we won't allow any changes to our liturgy. Um, it's set. It's set for life. Um, Spirit churches have a tendency to demonize tradition. You know, if it isn't new, uh, it's not the spirit. Word churches, lack of appreciation for the supernatural and, up, and the surprising. We do tend to, uh, I think we tend to see, at least in the cessationist arguments, you tend to see that everything has a natural explanation, and if it doesn't, then it's probably fake. There is a tendency that way lack of appreciation for the supernatural. Spirit side, lack of appreciation for the natural and the routine. Not everything has to be a miracle, but you might want to think that everything's got to be a miracle. Everything's got to be fresh and exciting. And, you know, routine things like doing the same thing every Sunday for 10 years, that just doesn't appeal. <clears throat> um, focus on the New Testament would be uh, a point for New Testament or for uh, the cessationist or word churches uh, like to preach didactively, logical, precept upon precept, line by line, follow the logic. That's all right, isn't it? But we focus on the New Testament more. Uh, Spirit-filled churches, they, they focus more on the Old Testament. I like the stories. I want to hear about Elijah. I want to hear about the, you know, the prophets and so forth. That's definitely there. Uh, Word churches stress Christ's deity. He was God. He did God-like things. Whereas spirit churches stress his humanity. He was a man depending on the power of the spirit. Someone we can relate to. Somebody who gives us hope that we too can do the things that he did. And so we do tend to, I think, I know it was it's definitely in my history, Focusing on the deity of Christ and forgetting about the, the value of knowing that he is an actual human that I can relate to, who can relate to me. <clears throat> a couple more, then we'll stop and have comments. Uh, word churches emphasize instrumentality. God uses means to do things. He uses Bible study. He uses prayer. He uses the Sunday gathering, things like that. Uh, spirit churches emphasize immediacy. I want to find God right now. I don't need to have it in his word. Just like, come to me now. Uh, there can be that kind of sense of immediacy as opposed to instrumentality that God works through means. Um, word churches can have lower expectations of prayer. Uh, I have to say that's true, has been true of me when I pray for healing got to the point where I never expected anything would happen. If it did, I thought it would probably be because somebody else prayed, not me. Um, where did I get that? I don't know, but that seems to be a part of uh, word churches. 
higher expectations of prayer on the spirit side, um, even to the point of being presumptuous, but there's definitely high expectation that God is working. Again, that's, that's all, that's, I think that's the better way, higher expectations, not too high, not presumption, but still higher. Um, angels is a theological belief for the, the word types. Angels is a functional reality for this spirit-type churches. Uh, an angel visited me last night. You know? um, whereas we would think that would never happen. A word church would. Word churches have a tendency to draw the boundaries of orthodoxy very narrowly. We have a very defined statement of faith. I don't think that's wrong. I think that's necessary. Um, in this, Especially in the U.S. where all kinds of denominations are just scattering everywhere. In their, in their theology and drifting away from the gospel. So we do draw our, narrow, our lines of orthodoxy very narrowly. Uh, a spirit churchist might have a tendency to draw those boundaries very broadly. You know, do you love Jesus? Then you're part of the church. You know, come right on in. We aren't going to set up a lot of doctrinal boundaries. Uh, and then last, grounds for unity. Theological agreement for word churches. Do you believe what I believe? Grounds for unity in spirit churches. Do we have a shared experience? Do you speak in tongues? Well, then you're. Then so do I. You know that. That's what makes us brothers. Well, the last thing to say here is: What will it take to see the gospel advance in the non-Christian and post-Christian environments like the U.S. is? It's going to take the same thing it took in the pre-Christian environment of the first century. Because the devil is the same, the fallen world is the same, our weaknesses are the same. And we need the same thing. We need the power of God's spirit, and we need the clarity of God's word. And that's what he's equipping you to do here. Equipping you with the word and how to handle that rightly. And also through last week and this week, the reminder that we must have the Holy Spirit's activity. And anything that he has given to his church, he has given for the purpose of advancing the gospel and building his churches. <clears throat> and so I just want to end with uh, a quick look at Acts chapter 10 and point out four expectations about what it'll look like for us as pastors and preachers. What will it look like for us to pursue the Word and the Spirit? And I think Acts 10 is one example of what that can look like. What, what are some expectations that we should have? Now, it's a pretty long chapter, so we're not going to read all of it. But if I could have somebody read Acts 10, 3 through 5, the first expectation is we can expect God to be working apart from us. Ten, three through five. Thank you. Lisa Core. Yeah, okay. So Acts 10 is, for, is Peter's first real venture out into the Gentile world. He's in a place called Joppa, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he is out there, and he gets this vision, an angel, um, wait, this is Cornelius first, that's right, Peter's out there, but as he's out there, there's this other guy in the area called Cornelius, and Cornelius mm -hmm. is a centurion, he's a Roman soldier, he's a leader of a hundred soldiers, a Gentile, and not just any Gentile, he is like one of the occupying force, right? Israel's under the governance of the Romans. So this is the enemy of Israel. Anyway, this guy, Cornelius, he gets a vision and says, send for Peter. Now, what I think is interesting about that is, notice how all of this starts, because eventually this, this centurion is going to become a Christian. But notice how it all starts. It doesn't start with Peter. It starts with the Lord speaking to this Gentile in a vision. Completely apart from Peter. Peter doesn't even know Cornelius exists. But God is preparing Cornelius to hear the gospel through a supernatural work, through a vision. 
saying, go send for Peter. And so that's part of what I think we have to have an expectation is that God is going to work apart from us. That the advance of the gospel is not ultimately just in our hands. You know, like you get trained here at the pastor's college and now, now it's up to you to go bring the gospel to Ethiopia and to the continent. But the expectation should be, no, it's still up to God. And he's the one who's going to be working ahead of us in ways we don't even know, but we can expect him to be. They may have a vision. I hear that in the uh, Muslim culture, that is often how someone comes to know Christ, is through a vision. Does that sound right, Muhammad? Yeah, you're shaking your head, yes. <clears throat> we can be sure that God is working. That's an expectation. But it also means there's a humility involved in this. It isn't just all up to us, right? You, you don't leave this pastor's college raring to go and thinking, yeah, all right, I know systematic theology now. I got the gospel straight. I'm going to do this. You have been equipped. Absolutely need to be doing that. But God has to be working, and we can expect him to be working. He will be working. This church and this pastor's college exists because God was doing something before it started. <clears throat> and I think that's exciting, you know, because that means it's not all up to us. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is still the Holy Spirit. He hasn't handed off the whole mission to us, and now he steps back. He goes with us. Jesus goes with us by the Spirit, and he's going to be working on hearts. He's going to be preparing soil. So that when that seed drops, it's going to bear fruit. I think that's exciting. Second thing we can expect, we can expect God to speak to us directly. We've talked about revelatory gifts. Let's see what this says. Acts 10, 10 to 15. Would somebody else read that? Okay, so Peter, remember he spent his whole life in a Jewish context, and he's been told all his life there's certain things you don't eat and certain people you don't eat with. You don't eat with Gentiles because they're unclean. That's, that's what he's heard all of his life. And even though he's a Christian, even though he's now in, in the Spirit indwells him and he understands the Scriptures, you and I know that it's hard to change lifelong mindsets, right? Uh, it still feels wrong to you, even if Jesus has given you freedom. And so Peter has this vision. It, it's about eating Unclean animals, reptiles, that's a no-no. <laughs> and so it's like, no, I've never eaten anything like that. And then comes the interpretation of the dream. What God has made clean, do not call common. And then what happens is, like in the next minute, so there's a knock at the door, and these Gentiles are there saying, we want Peter and he makes the connection later on in verse 28 when he actually gets to Cornelius' house. He says, God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. So God is breaking through to Peter here in a direct way, trying to break down his prejudice and his wrong ideas and preparing him for this ministry opportunity that somebody that he would normally say, I am not going to be in that world at all, the Holy Spirit is saying, don't call things, that, that are, call things unclean that God has called clean. And that ends up being people. So he's willing to go with these messengers. He makes the connection. All I want to point out in there is that God spoke to Peter directly. This time it was in a vision, but we have been talking this week about revelatory gifts. Prophecy, tongues with interpretation, perhaps word of knowledge. Things that God is doing to say, I'm on site and I know you and I have a specific word for you. And we can expect God to continue doing that because prophecy continues, tongues continues, words of knowledge continue. And who are they for? They're for the church. And so we can expect to be hearing from him. Not apart from the word. I mean, it's, it's not in, in, in opposition to the word. It's consistent with the word that we have written down and is authoritative, but we should expect him to be doing that. Uh, and avoid the mindset that the only way that God can ever speak to me is what I read. Because prophecy is not that. 
tongues is not that. Is God's prophecy in particular is God speaking directly. And I know that's what a cessationist has trouble with because it sounds like authoritative, inerrant revelation, but I think we've said that it's not what it is. It's a word that he spontaneously brings to mind that we report, and oftentimes hugely edifying, and sometimes guiding, and sometimes predicting. So we can expect that. We should have an expectation he's still going to speak to us, just not in those authoritative ways like are written down in Scripture. Um, C, we can expect to be placed in uncomfortable situations that require dependence on the Spirit, not on our talents or our wisdom. Somebody read Acts 10.33. Okay. Picture yourself in Peter's position. He wasn't planning on going anywhere. <laughs> he hadn't prepared any messages. He was just on the roof praying, waiting for lunch. And there's a knock at the door. We want you to come. And he goes. He doesn't know why. Um, but he's making this effort to go into the Gentile world. And now they say, ah, you're here. Tell us what the Lord has commanded you to say. <laughs> you know, if that's me, I'm thinking, I didn't have a message prepared. <laughs> I, w I wasn't planning on having anything to say. What do you mean what he's told me to say? You didn't have a sermon. That is very hard for people who like predictability, like me. Um, that's, that's a situation I don't feel comfortable in. I don't have strength for that. Um, I remember a time when I was in Mexico, I was on a mission trip, and we were going from town to town. We would go into an open square, and we'd play some music, and people would start to gather around and see what's going on. And then there would be testimonies, and then somebody would share the gospel. And sometimes those would be in churches. So one day, um, like maybe an hour before the meeting was going to happen, the guy who was leading this whole mission trip told me, he said to me, hey, Mark, why don't you bring the message tonight? And I said, okay. But inside I was like, you know, send somebody else. <laughs> uh, one hour? <laughs> I don't, that's not enough time. I need more time to prepare a message. But I said, okay. So anyway, I had time to write a couple scribble notes on a piece of paper, and then I preached the gospel from some psalm. I don't remember which one. And four people said they put their trust in Christ that night. But I was like totally out of my element. I was uncomfortable with this. I, I would never have said, okay, one hour is all I need. But the Lord put me in that situation. And I think he'll do that for us. If we're following the Spirit, uh, if, we're not, if, we'll, if we're willing to, to give up a little bit of predictability um, and open ourselves to, to really trusting in the Holy Spirit to work, Instead of, instead of trusting on our preparation and all that, then we're going to be in situations where we're going to have to depend on the Spirit. And then when He breaks through and does it, we'll be able to grow in faith and see that this really is God's work and not just my work. And I think that's, that's how it goes forward. Then last thing, we can have expectation that God will do amazing things. Can somebody read Acts 10, 44 to 48? Yeah. So just think about what this day was like for Peter. He started out in this guy's house, goes up on the rooftop praying. He's waiting for lunch. He doesn't have any idea that by the end of the day, he's going to be used by God to see a whole bunch of Gentiles dramatically converted. That they're also going to have gifts of the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues, it says. They were extolling God. They get baptized. You know, that wasn't Peter's plan. That wasn't his strategy. But it was the Lord's. But if we're open to what he wants to do, if we step out in faith and rely on the word that he's given us and the spirit that he's given us, we can expect that if we're following him, he's going to do his work. And a whole range of things could be the, the end of product of that. Not every time is it going to be speaking in tongues. But there will be baptisms. <laughs> and there may be gifts also. And I think that the Lord wants us to go forward with expectation that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
that if he sends us out, he's going with us. And that's how he spreads his gospel until every tribe and tongue and people and nation has heard it. And there are people who are converted from all of those nations. And then the end will come. And we're all part of that. But it's word and spirit churches. That's the way forward. So uh, let me answer the second question first. What do we expect on a Sunday? Always word and spontaneity both or one or the other uh-huh um, well, I think we can expect the Lord to work every Sunday how he works is up to him we can only take care of our part which is to be open and to plan to be open so for us um, we have a script we have a liturgy we have a plan for Sunday and I think that's right but we allow for the spontaneous uh, prophetic word by having a microphone available and training people about what it's there for and asking for it to be used. So that's a place where spontaneity can happen. Um, for a long time, I've been thinking about if I can get enough people interested, just at the end of every meeting, have a prayer team to pray for healing, to pray to have prophetic gifting, to have prophecy for them. Um, in Sam Storm's church, I've seen at the end of their service, their prophetic team comes up and they've been thinking about what God is saying the whole, the whole service. And they'll list two or three people that they felt like they had a word for, and then they'll say that word. And then they'll invite all of those people to come up uh, afterwards and they'll pray for them and talk with them about that word. So I think it's really a pastoral thing to make sure that on a Sunday you have a plan for the word and you also have a plan to receive the spontaneous, the spontaneous that there's openings for it. That's, I think, what I've seen as a good combination of word and spirit. But if we only have the plan for the word and we don't even expect or make room for the spontaneous, then I think we will be shutting down, we will be quenching the spirit we're not functionally trying to invite that into our meeting. But I think that's something the pastors talk through. Okay, what, how will we do this? But I think as long as there's a plan to include spontaneity, <laughs> you have room for the Spirit to work in those fresh ways. The first question was, how do you balance it? And I think that's probably the same answer is... Um, it, again, it's the pastors have to be talking through. Are we, let's review, like you guys reviewed every Sunday? You, you know, afterwards, you reviewed with Michael. One of the questions can be, did we, did we leave room for the Spirit? Were we, were we too rigid? Do, um, did we make any attempts to invite things like a word, uh, a prophecy, a tongue and interpretation? Let's review and say, did we do that or not? Or um, were we just too unstructured last week. <laughs> uh, how do we shore that up again with the word? So I think those things happen in those, those review meetings and the planning of it. Plan in the balance until you, you get there. We'll never totally get there, but we can move in that direction. So in our church, one more example is that we have this Friday night thing that we call Holy Fire that we are intentionally seeking God to speak to us in whatever way he wants to. We're praying and we're opening ourselves up to that, making it a small environment so we can make a lot of mistakes and work those out before we bring it into the Sunday meeting. Slow process. It hasn't spilled over to Sunday yet, but we're making an attempt. We need to grow in the spirit side, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think our denomination came from a part where there was too much emphasis on spirit, that was its origins, but got grounded doctrinally, latched onto that, while at the same time not getting rid of the spiritual, the, the spirit, but definitely it, down, it, it, it came down in, in uh, emphasis. And um, we have, I think, rightly emphasized the training, 
So in Louisville, for example, you got Jeff Perswell there. You know, you got the pastor's college there. It's going to be very doctrinally centered, word-centered. But we can swing too far and not have also that same amount of earnest desire for things like prophecy. So um, it, they never become, they never replace the word. I mean, the, the sermon is still, I think, the center of your Sunday morning. You know, we hear from God through his authoritative word. That's why elders have to have the ability to teach. It's the only gift that elders have to be able to have because teaching is how we feed the sheep, you know, primarily. So that's the right focus. But we also have to make sure that we're not downplaying the, the spirit, the, the prophecy, tongues, etc., as if, it, as if it didn't matter. It'll never be the center, but it shouldn't be gone. And I think we have to work at making sure that we're relying in a functional way on the Holy Spirit and his leading, which is why Mark Prater goes around and he teaches like a prophecy seminar. It's part of this course. Um, so I think that's, if we have a weakness, it's probably in that. But we are also battling in our environment, in our culture, the loss of the word of God. So that's why there's been an emphasis. That's what's being challenged. So I don't think that it's wrong that we've gone that direction. But we need to make sure that we shore up the other part at the same time and not lose it completely and be inviting the Holy Spirit to be working in miraculous ways.